This episode of the Consulting Pipeline Podcast is brought to you by me, Philip Morgan. Hey, I've got a small group mentoring program you might want to know about. The role of the program is to accelerate your progress in the transition from generalist to specialist. At least that's how it started out. It's become, by virtue of its flexibility and open-endedness, for some people it's become sort of a, I'm sort of their acting uh, CMO, which uh, you know, hiring a CMO would cost you somewhere around $150,000, $160,000 a year. I'm a little bit cheaper than that. <laughs> That's because I'm not your dedicated full-time chief marketing officer. I'm just there to ha- help you make those critical strategic decisions in how you market your services. So that's just one example of how people use this program. There are others, but if you'd like to check it out, head over to positioningacceleratorprogram.com. I got a really interesting question from, let me look it up here, (laughs) Mr. W. Uh, He and I have corresponded a bit, and the reason I wanted to highlight his question for this episode of the podcast is because it brings up what I think are some very relevant themes about the whole idea of specialization and developing valuable expertise. So in our correspondence, I asked Mr. W, what would you say is your biggest holdup in choosing a market vertical to focus on? And he responded in the following way, and I'll I'll kind of highlight the parts of his response that are very common themes. So he mentioned that he's... um, sort of had, I guess what you might call some false starts, where he's thought about specializing in a certain way and faced a situation where a client or an employer knew more about the technology or the solution than he did. And then he goes on to say he's feeling a little shy now, feeling like he doesn't know enough to impress or deliver value for someone to hire him as a specialist. And because of this, he keeps jumping technologies, hoping to find a blue ocean and wonders whether he could be spending that same amount of time getting better at delivering with the tools he already knows. So that's lightly paraphrased from the way he expressed it, and the reason I wanted to bring this up is because it's it's actually a very big, important question. And what I'm going to do here is not so much a response, an answer to that question, as more of just kind of a general meditation on the, the theme of the question. And I, I think this is a question that is particularly particularly likely to plague those who are gifted craftsmen or craftswomen or craftspeople, meaning they, they possess a skill which can be used to create things that are inherently beautiful or wonderful or complex, or powerful. Of course I'm talking about software developers, and I I mean, I'm such an admirer of the craft, and also simultaneously a critic of the idea of focusing only on the craft. Now, I, I criticize that idea, and and that you know that idea showing up in the world not because i think there's no place in the world for pure craftsmanship without a 
financial or economic uh, application. It's not that. Um, but there's a word for that, and it's called a hobby. Or, alternately, an employee. Or, alternately, a pair of hands. Or, alternately, a vendor. All of these are words that evoke the pure, undiluted application of craft to itself and not the application of skill or craft or expertise to something that has a beneficial result to others. I guess uh, now that I think about it, the word art might also fit there. So it's not that I think that there's, there's no place in the world for art or hobbies or craftsmanship completely standalone from economic application, it's not that at all. I think, in fact, that's an incredibly valuable part of human life. It's a incredibly wonderful, I mean, if it's, if it's not the actually actual goal of, of human progress, it's a, certainly a wonderful byproduct of human progress that we have, that so many of us, those who are kind of out of the strata of mere survival, so many of us have access to the ability, you know, the, the ability to do that, to have a hobby or to pursue something that is like art or might be called art. So again, it's not that I think that stuff is, has no place in the world, not at all, but we're here to talk about how you can take your skills and use them to benefit your business and develop expertise that has tremendous economic value. And that is a different thing. So, so many crafts people, you know, people who have potentially very valuable skills like software development or user experience design or uh, influential and persuasive writing. And, you know, the list goes on and on. So many of you, and I include myself in that category as well, are... Um, have this kind of question that Mr. W has about, you know, I just, I don't know enough. Or I got in a situation where I thought I knew enough and it turned out I did not know enough. It's a super common question. I'm going to pause for a moment and give you a quote. Um, I think I first heard this quote by way of my friend and colleague Jonathan Stark. And I think he attributed, I think the quote, the version of this quote was something that bon, John Bon Jovi or some other, uh, you know, 80s rock musician said. And when I went to look it up, I couldn't find that version, but I found what is probably the source of it from R Ralph Waldo Emerson. The quote is this, the man who knows how will always have a job. Yay. <laughs> the man who knows why will always be his boss. And it's, I mean, it's simultaneously unfortunate that that's true, but it's also, if you so choose to take advantage of this, it's one of the most powerful lever levers I think there is in terms of changing the, the results that you get out of your business. There's a sort of 80-20 rule going on. Um, the 80-20 rule 
you know, the Pareto principle briefly is summarized that 80% of the results go to 20% of the uh, members of a population that's, that's pr- potentially producing those results. So the minority, the vast minority, 20%, are going to get 80% of the good stuff in applying skills, in all sorts of aspects of life. So my transmutation of that is 20% of the value of what you can bring to a client is in your actual raw skills, your you know ability as a software developer, your knowledge, your uh, past experience of solving difficult problems. And for sure, there are some people, and I know this is endlessly frustrating <laughs> to, uh, to the typical software developer, there are some people who, who kind of cap out at a not very impressive level of raw technical skill who can still achieve phenomenal business results. And I know that's frustrating because there's a part of the mindset of the software developer, and, and it's not just limited to software developers, but there's a part of this mindset. And again, I'm not like trying to be insulting at all towards this, but just to, you know, if you have this mindset, present a different perspective. And if you don't, maybe help you understand this mindset a little more. But this mindset is, is and it's really, I say software developers, but I've seen it in, you know, the sort of neckbeard system administrator types. I've seen it all throughout the world of technology. The mindset is a very meritocratic view of things. And what you should be rewarded for in this view is your, your technical skill. If, if there were some way somehow to measure that in, in the pure abstract, that's what should determine your outcomes as uh, an economic unit of production. <laughs> I hate using that word, but anyway. So this idea that there's some people who could cap out at a not impressive level of technical still, skill and still achieve amazing business outcomes in terms of their revenue for their business, their personal income, the economic impact they have for clients. That idea is almost insulting to that mindset. But yet, it still happens, which means that maybe that mindset that only looks at the 20% slice of your value as a freelancer, as a consultant, as an expert, maybe that mindset's not quite right. So I think the other 80% of the value really is in the application of your skills. That is what makes that raw talent, if you will, that raw knowledge, that raw expertise. That's what really makes it valuable is how you apply it. And it's kind of obvious, I guess. You know, the skills on their own do nothing. They have to be applied to a problem. And the more impactful the problem is potentially the more valuable the economic results of you applying your skills to that problem is. That's why in the progression of developing a specialization and the expertise that goes along with it, choosing a vertical to focus on is the first and maybe for some people the only place they need to go because all of a sudden that gives them a defined somewhat narrow target to which to apply their skills. And so that's really in the progression from just only knowing how to 
the larger picture of knowing why, the larger and more valuable picture of knowing why, the first stop for a lot of folks needs to be picking a market vertical to focus on. And again, to that mindset that sort of glorifies the skill all by itself, abstracted from any application of the skill, to that mindset, again, it is a little bit, it feels diminishing, it feels um, borderline insulting. To take something that could be universally applied to almost any situation and constrain it. On the other hand, it's good to remember that the definition of something that can be almost universally applied to any uh, sort of situation in, in manufacturing, we call that a raw material or a commodity. And that is not how you want your skills to be priced, trust me. So again, the vertical focus is really, I think, the first stop, which for some people may be the first of several um, milestones on their progression towards knowing why. The man who knows how will always have a job. The man who knows why will always be his boss. Now, Mr. W brings up this idea of focusing on a platform. And that's another thing I want to touch on here before I wrap this sucker up. Focusing on a platform is a way to constrain your mm, uh, attention and the effort that you put into acquiring skills. You can say, okay, I'm not going to learn everything about everything. Instead, I'm going to learn as much as I can about a software or technology platform. I'm going to learn as much as I can about PostgreSQL databases. I'm going to learn as much as I can about Python or more specifically, processing massively large data sets with Python or data science. Or I'm going to learn as much as I can about NetSuite. I'm going to learn as much as I can about, you know, the list goes on and on. I I could be here for hours naming every technology platform. All of those are potentially (laughs) a viable way to focus, but often not the best. There's a range from, okay, that's a great way to focus, to that's a terrible way to focus. A couple episodes back, I was um, you know, having a laugh about thin clients. And if you had, you know, whenever those were the, you know, going to be the next best thing to sliced bread, uh, I'm going to say the late 90s or somewhere around the year 2000, if at that time you had said, oh, my God, this is the next best thing since sliced bread. This is it. I am going to focus on the thin clients. I am going to become a world-class, world-renowned expert in thin clients. You might have been really busy and really well compensated for not very long. (laughs) I don't remember that phase that, uh, I mean, it's it's tempting to call it a fad. I think it's more correct to call it a phase or a part of the larger evolution. That phase of things did not last very long. And certainly there's probably some companies out there that still have, you know, some old thin client terminals kicking around that they're trying to get a little more life out of. And they may pay a premium rate to have somebody who knows something about that stuff come in and help them out. But you would have chosen a technology platform that in the grand scheme of things was kind of a minor player and did not last very long. And by the way, I hope if I'm wrong, somebody writes in and says, well, why I'm wrong. But hopefully, (laughs) hopefully I'm not wrong. And hopefully the example, even if I am a little bit wrong, 
is relevant. The other place where you see this just happening so often is the, the world of world of front-end JavaScript frameworks. And that's an example of a of a um, ecosystem where there's just a ton of fast-moving uh, activity in terms of what's considered a good solution, what is going trying to establish itself as a long-term uh, robust solution, what's the flavor of the minute, that kind of thing. So that's, that's a, certainly a place where it's very risky to focus on a particular technology platform because it could change out from underneath you leaving your expertise, uh, rendering it much less valuable than it otherwise was. On the other hand, you do see people, I think of my friend Dave Hefner, um, he has a website, elementalselenium.com, and he focused on a platform and it worked out really well for him. And, you know, I, I guess Dave's not here to really answer this question of whether it was a tremendous amount of foresight on his part, but... I mean, I can tell you, having worked with a lot of people on this stuff, you do your best to make a good choice when it comes to specializing, and you do your best to collect enough evidence that demonstrates and proves that it's a good choice. But there's always an element of risk. Uh, if you focus on, mar on a market vertical, like uh, think about someone who, hypothetically, <laughs> if they'd focused on... Um, let's say the uh, construction or real estate or mortgage industry in the year 2007, they would have uh, just had spectacularly bad luck. And they would have been like, wow, all those people who sounded like uh, fringe, crazy uh, conspiracy theorists who were talking about the economy being overheated and yada, yada, yada. Wow, I wish I'd listened to them. <laughs> but, you know, they'd only really be able to say that in hindsight. Because there's people saying doomsday stuff all the time. You know, there's people saying Apple's over. And, you know, uh, my friend Liston has mentioned being bearish on Apple. And he probably knows more about it than I do. But yet, he could be wrong. Apple could have another 20 years of sustained awesome growth. So my point is not to pick on anybody in particular. It's just to say that um, Mr. W kind of brings up the idea of looking for a blue ocean and looking for... Uh, you know, a technology that's going to kind of carry him into a really, you know, a, a specialization that works for him. And that could happen. Or you could just pick something and go with it and see what happens. And I know the way I said that kind of trivializes it, makes it sound not uh, <laughs> not like a, a solid business strategy. That's not what I mean to say. I just mean to say that um, sometimes picking a technology is the right answer. But I think for more people, choosing a market vertical is the right answer because when you do that and you constrain the scope of what you do by applying your skills to a market vertical, you still retain some flexibility to be a pseudo-generalist in terms of the skills you acquire you still may bring to bear for that market vertical a variety of skill sets. And, and that also I, it makes the, the strategy of picking a market vertical a particularly suitable positioning strategy for very curious people who like change, which I've seen a lot of overlap with that personality and the typical software developer. So 
I should wrap this up. Like I said, this was more of a meditation on the question than an answer to the question. Hope it helps, Mr. W. Um, Just know that I'm very sympathetic to where you are, and a lot of us have spent a lot of time where you are, so I'm not saying there's some easy answer that you're missing. And and that's also part of the reason I did not give a specific answer is um, a lot of it depends so much on the particulars of your situation. But that said, um, I guess the one takeaway for you is do think about picking a market vertical. If you, dear listener at home, have a question you'd like me to answer on air, call it into the Consulting Pipeline Podcast answer hotline at 707-204-0717. That's just a plain old telephone number. You'll get a voicemail prompt. Leave your question as a voice message. I'll play it on air and do my best to answer it.